0: Let's begin in silence, do what it takes just to be here, take a deep breath, put your feet on the floor, close your eyes if that's helpful. May grace be in our heads and in our thinking, may grace be in our eyes and in our seeing, may grace be in our ears and in our hearing, may grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. May grace be in our hearts and in our understandings. And may grace be at our ends and at our departing. So, no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. Uh, Tim keeps giving me an update on the registration for the um, Suzanne Stabil event. Uh, we're approaching 200. I don't know what our limit is, but. Um, As I said, as word gets out, this will sell out. So if you want to come, be here on that Saturday in person. Um, The registration is easy on the website to do that. Um, Next Sunday, uh, Brooke Summers Perry is gonna be here. Brooke is a certified spiritual director and she's gonna do an introduction to the Enneagram. And for those of you who don't know the Enneagram, complicated sounding word it simply means nine types that's what the word translates as and um, it's a way of understanding your own personality the places where you can um, fall off the path I'm a seven on the Enneagram and seven one of the labels that's given to a seven is Epicurean all right the other more honest um, label that is given the seven is glutton. And so gluttony is one of the sins that you might remember one of the seven sins, or nine on this particular model. And so let's just to say, I'm making this absolutely up, but let's just say a seven might collect things like recipes, or watches, or kaleidoscopes, or books, or magic tricks. I've heard. I understand. All right. Um, So, I'm married to a four. Four, four, you can tell many fours by the way that they dress. And fours have an innate double message that they send out, which is, pay attention to me, but I don't want to be the center of attention. You know, it's like kind of this paradoxical thing. So, we all have pluses and minuses, and the focus of Suzanne Stabile's work is going to be relationships. And so how we can use our innate personality, those of you who have children know that, that your child came into the world with a personality, and if you have different children, you, they have different personalities, and you know that, you can figure that out. So Suzanne Sebel is very entertaining, and uh, she's also a, a good teacher. So I um, hope you will be, be here for that. Um, This Saturday, and some of you have heard about this, uh, you know that the steering committee plus some has hired a consultant to work with Ordinary Life. This Saturday, we're having a big meeting, and at some point, the results of that meeting are going to be reported out in here. I don't have a plan for when that will be, whether that will be on the 17th, 24th, or sometime, but you will get informed about when that's going to happen. just wanted to let you know that that is up coming up thank you for the flowers if you didn't see if you didn't know this and if you didn't see them you um, had flowers in the sanctuary today in honor of my birthday which is coming up Saturday, wednesday so yeah. and i don't know how old i am i keep forgetting but um i'll make a reference to that later but i'm very I, th- there is no way for me to say how um important, and uh, this is, this is, you are, how important it is for me in my daily life and work to look forward to uh, being here, to doing the study and preparation that's required for me to be here. It gives meaning to me in a a hundred thousand different ways, and I'm just so grateful to you that you show up here, because if you didn't show up, it would be very lonely (laughs) in here. Anyway, thank you for that. It seems like there was some other announcement. Welcome to those of you who are watching live stream. I did successfully guilt a few people <laughs> into coming in person today. Oh. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, you're very generous. So let's get going. So this um, five-year-old, very precocious girl, comes home from Sunday school. Her parents had been shopping around for a church. They figured their child ought to have a religious background, so they'd been going to various churches, and they go to church, and they come home on Sunday after church, and they're getting lunch ready after church, and the parents are talking to this little five-year-old girl about her experience at church. They'd gone to what we call big church, and she had gone to a children's class in the Sunday school, which thankfully here at St. Paul's we have a really great young person, people's education program. So they were talking about her, about her experience in class, and she had a good time. She liked her teacher, liked other kids who were there, and the parents said, well, what did you learn? And she said, well, we talked, they talked about God. And the parents said, mm-hmm. And uh, to what, what was that about? And the little girl said, well, they said that God is everywhere. Is that true? And the parents said, well, yes. And this little girl is like a lot of us. I mean, she'd been taught that God, whatever that word pointed to, is some bigger than life, but more than like human-like character that's out there somewhere. So that God is everywhere. It's, it's just. Something she would not considered. And the little girl said, does that mean that God is here? And the parent said, yes. Now, she's five. So she's looking around and said, so is God here in this kitchen? And the parent said, yes, God is here in the kitchen. In this room, yes. She pointed at the table and said, looked at a coffee cup and said, is God in that coffee cup? And the parents said, well, yes. Little girl clamped her hands over the cup and said, all right, God, I got you. (laughs) Now, that is a made-up story, but it is not far off from what we have done with our religious doctrines and dogma. We have tried, and sometimes even been confident that we have succeeded in capturing God, that we've got a grasp on this thing now, and so what I want to offer today is what might be considered a two-parter that I began last Sunday Um, on uh, talks I'm basing on reflections based on the Lord's Prayer, and um, we're at this phrase when you pray say our Father. So last week we focused more on the word our. And um, if you missed that one, you can go back and watch it on uh, YouTube that's posted, uh, usually about Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, But to summarize, what I would say is that so many of our problems in this country as well as globally are the result of the fact that we don't know how to say and experience our. We're granulated as a culture. And because we're granulated as a culture because we're this way individually. And I know that I teach being nonjudgmental, but I am so judgmental about... Um, People who are always seem to me to be doing this, you know, when they're talking. And and as I mentioned, we live now in an apartment where the workout room overlooks the swimming pool. And I'm amazed at how many people get in the swimming pool carrying their phone. Seriously. And a beer. (laughs) And a vaping thing. But this, I don't get it. We're victims of our success. This thing is very, 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 very useful. I mean, seriously, it is really useful in so many ways, and it is also uh, a great um, interrupter of things. Uh, we had a, The clergy all had lunch here together on Wednesday, and Jeff McDonald said that he was at a meeting where somebody said, it's okay to use your phone during this meeting, but if you do, would you turn your chair around and face outward? And of course, no one was willing to do that. <laughs> so people put their phones down. This is great. So I'm, I'm sure that my, my grandchildren now in universities and, and out and working, um, they'll look back on their adolescence and pre-adolescence as the golden age of their lives. Um, and, and they'll say, oh, there was so much to be grateful for when I was that age. But I, for one, am grateful that I grew up in a pre-digital age where we didn't have a TV set. And um, the way I entertained myself was by reading. And I am still of the opinion that learning to read is one of the most vital skills that we can give people in our culture. Children have got to learn how to read because knowing how to read equips them for the rest of life, right? Reading is how you learn how to navigate life in so many ways. And I have always thought that as a culture, we shoot ourselves in the foot By not paying our teachers as much as we pay doctors. I think we should do that. But that's another topic for another time. And my my point was last week that one of the biggest needs in our culture is learning how to say our. So, um, and today we're going to focus on this thing about father. All children go through the phase of asking impossible-to-answer questions. Why is the sky blue? Where do babies come from? Do fish get thirsty? (laughs) And you know, if you're a parent, you do the best you can to answer these questions in the best way you know how, until you resort to, well, go ask your mother. <laughs> or go ask your father. And then, or then, when that doesn't work, you can say, well, you'll understand when you grow up. When you're by and by. Or, then, worst of all, that, well, that's just the way God made it. Now, like, I think many of you, I grew up in a church-going family. Like some of you, I don't think I was damaged by that. Um, I do think I was lied to about some things, particularly race. And uh, on many matters, I was woefully misinformed because the people around me were woefully misinformed. They, weren't, they didn't have bad intention. Um, but I have an enormous gratitude for what I was taught in that context and what I experienced in that, in that context. Um, if I have a sadness about it, it is that as I began to live in a larger world and I tried to share that with people in my tribe, my church, my family, they wouldn't come with me. And that's something that made me sad. It still makes me sad. And I think that one of the things that you will discover is that when you start to rethink all of your religious teachings in light of our growing understanding of what goes under the heading of evolutionary cosmology, you're going to live in a smaller cognitive community because most people out there are not interested in this. And so if you are, you're just diminishing that number of people who are interested The thing I'm thinking about is that uh, we pretty well are comfortable with the idea that there's no God who lives in the sky above us. That that's a limited understanding of God. I think most of us are aware that all humans on this planet came from the same evolutionary family somewhere in Africa. We all share the same DNA regardless of our skin color. I think we all know that all religions are human constructions and they are constructed by the cultures in which they were created. So American South religion is very different from American Northern religion and Christianity is very different from the religion you find in Japan or in Nepal or wherever. Religions are culturally influenced. What we call sacred scripture, the Bible, was written by people like us. And um, they were written for a specific time, not for us. And I think most people are aware of that. The list of that sort of thing can go on and on. And it's very normal for the tribe in which we are born to claim superior status for itself. But if we're willing to live in a larger world... We begin to see that not only other people in different tribes were taught the same thing about what they were taught. Um, But as we interact with these people, we begin to experience the wonder and the beauty of diversity. I'm reading a book that one of you recommended to me. This is not in my notes, called The Geography of Bliss. And, and uh, the guy who is the author is a former NPR r- a reporter. And he's going to all the different countries in the world trying to find out where the happiest one is. Bhutan is supposed to be, right? But they have certain things. And it reminded me of uh, the saying, the proverb, that the one who does not travel thinks mother is the only cook. (laughs) Um, I have referred frequently that my parents attended a Baptist church in a small town in Tennessee, and I was taught that our church's understanding of things was not only correct, but also the best. It was superior to others. And I learned to think in disparaging ways about other Christians, especially Catholics. We look down on Catholics, I'm sorry. You know, others, like the Catholics, the Episcopalians, the Methodists, they had to read their prayers out of prayer books. We were religious enough to pray spontaneously. Some misguided people baptized their infants, While we knew that baptism was reserved for believers, for adults who could be baptized. By the way, if Baptists tell you that they believe in believer's baptism, uh, adult believer's baptism, that's a lie. Because the Baptists teach kids that if you aren't baptized, you're going to hell if you die. So kids can't wait till they can get dunked to be safe from that. So as soon as you're old enough to hold your breath, you get baptized. Building on the gross and misunderstanding of Martin Luther about the priesthood of believers, we were taught that every adult is capable of interpreting the Bible. Without education, without understanding the Bible, anybody can interpret the Bible. And... I have taught in two seminaries in my career, a Roman Catholic seminary and a Protestant seminary, and I taught homiletics, which is preaching. And I had a student one day who was not very educated who came to the seminary, and he had the belief that he could interpret the Bible, and he had no biblical interpretation classes under his belt, so he turned in a sermon. You know this has got to be true, because I could not make something like this up. There's a passage in John where Mary gets to the tomb and the stone is rolled away. And she looks in, but she doesn't go in. She goes to get the male disciples. I say it that way because Mary was the first disciple, right? First apostle. We weren't taught that either. She goes and gets them and then the other disciples come and then Peter goes into the tomb and sees that the, the, the clothes in which the linens then in which Jesus' body had been wrapped are there in the tomb. And that the napkin, it's called, that had been wrapped around his head had been neatly folded and placed aside, right? And so this student turned in a sermon called the Tidy Tomb. And he said that the meaning of that passage of Scripture was that it meant that if you were to follow Jesus, you needed to be neat and keep your house clean because Jesus left a tidy tomb. <clears throat> he got an F. tell <laughs> no telling how much damage had been done in... Um, churches all over the world by people who have lifted a phrase or one passage out of context, cherry picked it to use, teach whatever they wanted to. So the adults in my growing up life had no trouble politely as Christians looking down on other people who also caused themselves Christian because we were going to heaven and they were not. As a matter of fact, we call those people heathens. And as Baptists, we raised millions of dollars for foreign missions. To send missionaries to what we call, the, the working phrase, operant phrase was, the darkest part of Africa. I thought as a kid, the, the, the greatest thing I could do to get God off my back was to be a medical missionary in Africa. If I did that, then I'd be safe, you know. Maybe God would like me then. So I was told, you know, those people worship idols. And uh, the word idol has a very interesting etymology. Uh, It comes from a Greek word, then through Latin to us as idol. But the Greek word actually means reflection in water. Kind of like Narcissus looks in water and sees Narcissus' face and falls in love with that that image. So what it means is that what you're looking at is not the real thing, but an image of it. So um, I grew up with this reveal theology, which I'm going to talk about in in a moment. But... um, Heathen people worshipped idols. Now, this is pride to Roman Catholics particularly because they worshipped the cross. They prayed to a cross. Even worse, they prayed to Mary. And then those people who were really heathens, the Buddhists, bowed down to a Buddha, which was a little bald, fat guy who had either just heard a really good joke or he has gas. We're not sure which that is. The cross, by the way, is the one is in the uh, little bitty church in uh, Assisi that Francis saw and heard the call from God, Build my church. And we've been lucky enough to see that. And um, if you would let me, I want to read you a passage from the Bible. From uh, This was read to me when I was a kid in... Sun Sunday school in a Baptist church in Tennessee. Now we call, this is from a portion we call the Old Testament, which is so arrogant. It's Christian's way of saying that our New Testament trumps the Hebrew scriptures. The correct and we don't even have all the collection in what we call the Old Testament. The collect way to talk about that body of writings is the Hebrew scriptures, not the Old Testament. But this is in the Old Testament from um, uh, in, Isaiah, in Isaiah. I'm going to read you Eugene Peterson's um, version of it. And he, instead of using the word idol, he sometimes uses the word no God, no hyphen God. Okay. This is Eugene Peterson. Now, you imagine, I'm 10, 11 years old, and this is being read to me. All those who make no-God idols don't amount to a thing. And what they work so hard at making is nothing. Their little puppet gods see nothing and know nothing. They're total embarrassments. Who would bother making gods that can't do anything, that can't God Watch all the no-good worshipers hide their faces in shame. Watch the no-god makers slink off humiliated when their idols fail them. Get them out here in the open. Make them face God reality. The blacksmith makes his no-god, works it over his forge, hammering it on his anvil. Such hard work. He goes away fatigued with hunger and thirst. The woodworker draws up plans for his no-god, traces it on a block of wood, he shapes it with chisels and planes into human shape, a beautiful woman, a handsome man, ready to be placed in a chapel. He first cuts down a cedar or maybe picks out a pine or an oak, lets it grow strong in the forest, nourished by the rain. Then it can serve a double purpose. Part, he uses his firewood for keeping warm and baking bread. From the other part, he makes a god that he worships. that he carves into God's shape and prays before it. With half, he makes a fire to warm himself and barbecue his supper. He eats his fill and sits back satisfied with his stomach full and his feet warm by the fire. Ah, this is the life, he says, and still has half left for a God made to his personal design, a handy, convenient, no God to worship whenever so inclined. Whenever the need strikes him, he prays to it, save me. You're my God. Pretty stupid, wouldn't you say? Now, it took me a number of years to realize that the adults in my life who were using this passage to teach me to judge and look down on people who worshiped idols, were reading from something they treated like an idol. The Bible. This is the Word of God. And you couldn't say anything about it. I know there were houses where you couldn't put anything on top of the Bible. It was so precious. But we made fun of people who used these. These. Now, knowledge derived in the way that I just talked about is called reveal theology. There there are two types, broad types of theology. There's what's called reveal theology. You know, no one was present at the creation, but we have a description of it in the Bible. Actually, we have two descriptions of it in the Bible that are really quite different. Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How do we know this? Because God told us. And how did God tell us? God wrote it in a book and gave it to us to know. At least God gave it to some special people who then gave it to us. So God has taken the initiative to tell us about himself. And God told us that his creation was a good creation. And then God saw that creation started to go f- arise, so he killed, he killed everybody. But we've printed that up into a great story called Noah and the Ark to tell children, which is really a terrible story to tell kids when you think about it. And, and by the way, uh, when you think about that story, just try to picture that in the Middle East, down around Iraq, where this was probably taking place in Egypt, wherever Noah was, that two penguins made it all the way from the Antarctic <laughs> to get on the ark. The problem with reveal theology, and there are many, is that you can't test it. So the phrases thrown back at me when I was this precocious little kid were things like, well, you just have to accept the Bible." The Bible was divinely inspired. So just accept it. Why? Because I said so. Okay. There was a phrase, you may have heard it. The Bible said it. I believe it. That settles it. Or when, and I've told this story in here before, I remember, I can remember vividly where I was when this transaction happened. I asked my father, do you really believe the story of Jonah and the big fish? And my father said, if the Bible said that Jonah swallowed the fish, I would believe that. And that's when I realized that my father's religion was crazy. That's crazy. And as and, and I, I got some distance from it, I began to wonder, did God really wait? Until there were Southern Baptists in Tennessee in the 50s to say anything? Or wait until the Reformation to say anything significant? So where's the real Bible? you got to know the answer to this. It's right out there. Right out there. The heavens declare, as the psalmist wrote. And so what I'm doing right now, which is challenging the authority of the Bible, is touching one of the most sensitive issues in the church today. If you say something spooky about the Bible, a lot of people get their hackles up. But to say that the Bible is divinely inspired is to say that a book that contains truths, half-truths, untruths, good ideas, bad ideas, helpful ways of looking at things, unhelpful ways of looking at things, and so forth, was all revealed to us by God off somewhere in the sky. Now, in light of cosmic reality as we're coming to know it, that teaching simply doesn't hold for me anymore. Now, I'm aware that in Christian tradition, there are many reports of God experiences outside of the Bible. Um, it, it's not uncommon for people who have had experiences that have no other explanation than random occurrence or statistical probability or luck is to be a God thing. All right? I ran into Mary at the grocery store, and she recommended a book to me that changed my life. It was a God thing. Now, that's still human interpretation, and I noticed over a long period of human history that Christians have one kind of God thing, and Roman Catholics have another kind of God thing, and Buddhists have another kind of God thing. It depends on the culture that you're in, what your God thing shows up at. In the Christian tradition, Roman Catholics have religious experiences around the crucifix and around the Virgin Mary, the Virgin of Guadalupe, and the Virgin that appeared in the Balkans years ago, and there was a lot about, about that. Um, Pentecostals have religious experiences around the Holy Spirit and around speaking in tongues. It depends a lot on the culture in which we are raised. My point is that as satisfying as these experiences may be, they do not prove that such a revelation has happened, it just proves that a person has had an experience of some kind that they choose to give an explanation to. Now the other kind of broad theology that we have is what's called natural theology. And to summarize that very briefly, it's the assertion that there must be a God because there's stuff. Somebody must have made this stuff. Nothing comes from nothing, right? So I used to argue in high school, well, okay, if God made everything, who made God? Which was a clever thing, but got no answers, except got me in trouble. In the last few years, this uh, natural theology has come up in conservative Christianity. It's called intelligent design theology. You might have heard that, intelligent creationism kind of thing. And uh, let's say you grant that is the case, that there's a designer. It doesn't tell us anything about the designer. Um, Just looking at what goes on on this planet, you think it's a good design or a bad design? Are there other universes out there with other intelligent life out there, you think, the odds are? And if so, do they need to believe in Jesus? I keep uh, returning again uh, again to a line I first heard from Shelby Spong when he said, The heart cannot worship what the head denies. Now, I don't know if you read the previews that are sent out about these times or not. If you do, you saw that um, the title I was giving this time today was called God the Problem. And I stole that title from a book, a textbook I had, that was written by the man whose picture you see, <clears throat> Gordon Kaufman. Um... This was the textbook that I was assigned to read and study when, pardon me, I began my postdoctoral work at Harvard in 1972. I looked up on the internet what was going on in 1972. Very few people had personal computers. These things, of course, didn't exist at all. That was another 10 years coming. Um, the people, the people who had personal computers, only half of them had a brand new service called AOL, America Online. Ding, you got mail. Remember that? Some of you. They're out of business now. Shag carpeting was the rage. Star Wars. Richard Nixon was president and it carried all 40, uh, 49 of 50 states. Unheard of. <clears throat> also, the Watergate scandal was just unfolding at the same time. So. Bunny Sunday took place in Londonderry, Northern Ireland, where 26 people were shot by British police. Hewitt Packard introduced a handheld scientific calculator that sold for $395. Norn, Nolan, that that. Calculator? Did you have one? You had one. Today, that calculator would be worth two thousand. Today's money, that amount, three ninety-five was two thousand seven hundred seventy-five dollars. Now, I may mention this period in my life frequently, but it just was a turning point in my life. Um, one of the major per- turning points in my life, personally and professionally. <clears throat> my friendship with Bill Martin, who has spoken here the sociologist, um, led me into a relationship with Martin Marty, uh, with uh, Harvey Cox, I'm sorry. And Harvey Cox and I, in a conversation that uh, lasted a couple days, said, uh, would you like to come to Harvard? I can arrange you to have a scholarship. And I said, yes, I think I'd love to do that. So I went to Harvard for a year of sabbatical study. <clears throat> and I got to study with some of the world's leading biblical and religious scholars. Gordon Kaufman was Paul Tillich's successor, and he was, without question, you may never have heard of him, one of the most influential theologians of the last half century. I mentioned him some time ago in here and found out that people who come to this class sometimes, Randy and Janet Zirker, actually knew Gordon Kaufman growing up because Gordon was a Mennonite. And that influenced a lot of his theology. He was a conscientious objector. He was a strong emphasis on social justice. Um, One of the things that I loved about him was he was so precise about language and everything. And being a student of his, as well as other people who were there at uh, Harvard at the time, confirmed to me... That my intuition, my intuition in 1972, that whether theological teachings appeal to reason or experience or to revelation, they did not reveal timeless truths. That we can never say about anything that we know all there is to know. Now, for me, this is a very hopeful, healing stance. Culture, language, social organization, I got this from Kaufman, are the crucial means by which we engage reality, by which we create meaning, and by which we locate ourselves in the widely Cosmic context of existence. Now, this was way before we had Hubble. That Kaufman was talking about this. I was tempted today to call the talk my sin of idolatry because, man, I have been guilty of it. There have been plenty of times when I said, "This is it. This is this is the way." Each of us regularly and powerfully. Is tempted everybody to be right, to be in control, and to win. It's a culture. Now, we'll return multiple times to this matter, God the problem, because we need to be reminded that the community of faith and trust into which Jesus invited people is not one where we're in charge. It is one where if we choose to be a part of it and participate in it, um, that's up to us. You don't have to go anywhere to do this. You just decide to do it. it. This community of empowerment into which we are invited doesn't work on our timetable. And it upsets our way of thinking about things. We're not in charge. We'll get to that when we get to the phrase in the Lord's Prayer that says, Thy will be done, not mine. Theologies can be useful and helpful, but they're always provisional. Right? We can never say, this is the final answer. Now, I want to be clear. Last week I said, when we began this current exploration of our understanding of God, that though our worldview will not allow us to have the same understanding of God that Jesus had, it is my belief, indeed it is my personal experience, that we can have an intimate relationship with the sacred like Jesus had. That I believe. I don't have to believe the same thing to have the same experience. So this Wednesday I will be 86. Gordon Kaufman died at 82. I hope obviously for many more years to learn and teach, but one never knows. A Couple of years after I came back from Harvard, I entered what was undoubtedly the most difficult period of my life, personally and professionally. And during this time, I was found by a couple of books. He knew that I would recommend books. They gave me so much comfort and guidance. One was a book by Frederick Buechner. I'd, I'd met Buechner years before and, and he, as a novelist. And had already bought most of his books up to that time. But the book that found me in 73, after I came back from Harvard, was a book called The Sacred Journey that Buechner wrote. And if you haven't read it, you should uh, read it. Um, It shepherded me through a very difficult period of my life. And in the book, Bigner talks about his understanding of faith and hope and love. And it's a brief book, but it's so rich beyond measure. And it speaks of a time when Beekner himself was very sick as a young boy. By the way, his father committed suicide and a lot of his work grows out of that that pain. But as a a young kid, when he was very sick, he spent a lot of his time in the imaginary imaginary world of Oz by reading the Frank Baum books of Oz. And one of the characters in... uh, the Oz books that left this deep mark on Buechner was King uh Rink-a-dink. And according to Beekner, he was a foolish man in many ways who laughed too much and talked too much and at moments of stress was apt to burst into unlikely tears. But he gave the impression of remarkable strength and resilience and courage even, you know, he'd be a good guy to have around when the ships are down. And uh, so he and his young friend, Prince Inga of Pinkery, who's sitting behind him on the horse, came into possession of three magic pearls. One blue one that conferred such strength no power could resist it. A pink one that protected his owner from all dangers. And a pure white one that would speak words of wisdom and helpfulness. And uh, if you look at our wedding rings, you will see that they have a pink, a blue, and a white stone on them. That's how influential this guy was. And the, 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 the white one that would confer words of wisdom and helpfulness, when consulted for the first time, said, never question the truth of what you fail to understand because the world is filled with wonders. Now, folks, that's a a formula for good theology and for good spiritual work. Never question the truth of what you fail to understand. The other book that became very meaningful to me at that time was a book by Peter Matheson. Um, Both Beekner and Matheson are dead now, too. Um, Don't want to join that group anytime soon, but just saying. Now, if you read this book, which is, I don't know if it's still available, but um, I'm sure it must be. Uh, you, you'll not be surprised to when I tell you that after this book, he became a Buddhist monk. Um, but it's almost apparent in the book that he's done a lot of work in that. The book is The Snow Leopard. And it tells a story about the time that Matheson went with a friend of his. The same year I went to Harvard, Matheson went to the Himalayan mountains in Tibet. His friend was going over there as some sort of um, animal husbandry project to study the blue sheep that were in the Himalayas. And um, Matheson hoped to tag along and take a photograph of the famed snow leopard in the Himalayas. So if you read the story, it becomes clear that Matheson is on a spiritual quest. And we find out that his wife has recently died of cancer. And though it was a very painful decision to make, he decides to leave America and go on this trip, leaving his young son behind, because that's how important this quest was for him. It's a very difficult journey. It's expensive in many ways. And the book charts both the inner and the outer path of Matheson making this trip in search of the snow leopard. And It's really a story about the deeper understanding of reality, suffering, importance, and beauty. I want to say that again, because this is Fitz. This is a story about you and me, because it's a story about reality, suffering, impermanence, and beauty. Got that? That's what our journey is about. And where I've ended up is that God, whatever we mean by that word, is a mystery that inhabits us and that we inhabit. And our spiritual work is about realizing that. So all along Matheson's journey one as I said required great discipline suffering and hardship he heard sightings of the snow leopard here and there sometimes he missed the snow leopard by just a few hours and finally when he returns home somebody says to him <clears throat> did you see the snow leopard and he said no Isn't that wonderful? You need me to spell that out? I'm going to. He didn't get what he wanted. It didn't turn out the way he planned. He was not successful. He was not in control of the outcome. And afterward, he said, isn't that wonderful? It's pure heresy to look for God. God is no other than right here. And it is equally heretical to think we understand that. Okay, so we're left hanging. Gee. Gosh, where is there a symbol of that in our tradition? Oh, I know, it's that guy on the cross, isn't it? Hanging. Not in control. Not successful. Utterly failed. And that's when Truth, love, and freedom broke loose. We have not, we will not, we cannot solve the problem of God. Isn't that wonderful? No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargoes to so watch your step and... uh, Brooke Summers Perry will see you, and I will be here, too, next Sunday. Be here. Thank you.